things have been kind of dark lately, right? Like, we talked last week about how everybody's mad at everybody all the time, and like, if you've been online and social media, no one's not a cottonhead and ninny muggins or a nitwit or something all the time, right? Like, so I, I decided this week that I was going to try and unite the world because I feel that kind of pressure, and I asked my Facebook friends, I said, what is something that almost everyone likes? And I was really intrigued because like, I figured people would be arguing about it and stuff, but we got a pretty good consensus built, so I wanted to share that with you. We've determined that pretty much everyone likes sunshine outside of you like vampire kind of people, right? Like everybody's down with the sunshine. If it's 70, 80 degrees out, there's not too many people complaining. There's always going to be a couple of you. Don't raise your hand. I don't need to hear it, right? Like, but, but pretty much everybody's cool with sunshine. The next one, and this was an important one for me to build consensus on because, well, it's pizza, right? Like, even if you don't love pizza, even if it's not your favorite food, if you're in a room and someone goes, hey, there's free pizza over there, you're probably going to eat a piece, right? Good pizza, bad pizza, medium pizza, it's all the same. You're going to eat at least one piece of pizza because it's free. Don't, please don't argue with me on that one. Like, even if you don't feel that way, just keep it to yourself, okay? Um, another, the next one is uh, puppies. Right? Like, even if you're not a dog fan, that picture, you just kind of melted a little bit, didn't you? Like, even if you're allergic, even if you don't like dogs, even if dogs bark and bite, all that, like, <laughs> that's, that's awesome, right? Like, whose day is not made by that picture? Another good one I thought was ice cream. And someone commented ice cream, and I immediately replied, yeah, but you got to worry about, like, the lactose intolerant people. And I had two different friends who were like, I am lactose intolerant, and ice cream is worth it. Like, so... More power to you. The last one, and this is the funniest thing, I, I promise you, this is totally true, is that someone posted, I like finding money in my pocket. And everybody, you know, everybody agreed, and I was like, yeah, that's cool. I put these pants on this morning, and there were $3 in my pocket that I have no idea where they came from. So somebody's going to come up to me after service, back. remember that time I loaned you 3 bucks? <laughs> You can't have it back, okay? Like, so, right, everybody agrees. There are some things in this world that everyone likes. You know, it's like, I mean, it's cool. We all get along. Everything is cool. But I also think, not to bring it back down, but I, I think there are some things that everybody doesn't like, right? For instance, one is the DMV and waiting in line. Here's the weird thing about this. I, you know, everyone I know talks about, like, being at the DMV or going to the DMV. Maybe you all feel like I do. Like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> like, I, I go get my driver's license from Karen at the court. court. Like, that's how I know, you know? Um, but everybody else complains about it, so no one likes the DMV. The next one that I don't think anyone likes, and if you disagree with me on this, you're allowed to be wrong, but you're still wrong. Nobody likes going to the dentist. Good, you all agree with me. Um, I have to tell you this just to admit this story about myself. I was at the dentist recently, like, you know, like a year ago. I was at the dentist anyways, and um, they had this iPad for you to fill out all of that paperwork they make you fill out beforehand. And I got to this one question that said, how do you feel about being at the dentist today? Are you, you know, like, are you nervous or worried? And I wrote, because I, in my mind, no one's ever going to read this. This is just paperwork they send to the insurance company. So I wrote, I'd rather get out of it, jump out of an airplane with a parachute I packed myself than be here. So a couple of minutes go by, you know, I turn the iPad back in, and the, and the dental hygienist opens the door, and she's cracking up. And I was like, what's so funny? And she goes, parachute, you packed yourself, huh? And I was like, you read that? 
So they're working on my teeth, and she's scraping a little extra hard, you know, and like elbowing me every, every chance she gets. So I'm thinking, like, I kind of forget about it, and the moments pass, and then a couple minutes later, the dentist comes in, and he's looking at my teeth. He's got his fingers in my mouth, and he's doing whatever dentists do, and he goes, so, packed any parachutes lately? And I was like, uh, only kind of meant, and then he like yanked on all my teeth and made my life miserable, but no one likes the dentist. It's okay. You can, you can like getting your teeth cleaned, but when they have to do like the others, like the root canals and the drillings and all that, nobody's a fan of that. But I have decided there is one thing that no one, no matter your, no matter any other preference in your life, no one likes sitting in traffic, right? Like people don't care about getting lost. There are people who are like, hey, let's just drive out today and get lost. Let's, let's, you know, go for a journey, whatever. But there is no one I've ever met who says, you know what I love more than anything is sitting in traffic and just waiting, right? Like it happens to everybody all the time. And it doesn't happen as much here, but if you've traveled, you know, like to a major city or you've been in different places, you know about sitting in traffic or on vacation or whatever, but no one is ever happy in traffic. And I've decided that it's because we don't like to be told what to do. More than that, not only do we not like to be told what to do, we really don't like to be stopped from doing something we want to do. And here's, hear me out here. Like, I, I think for the 99.9% of us, if someone tells you you cannot or are not allowed to do something, what is your next urge? Immediately do it, right? So I don't think any of you can pay attention for the next 24 minutes. But, like, you know, like, if someone were to be like, Ben, you cannot jump off this stage, I'll prove to you a hundred times that I can do it. I might break my ankle one of those times, but I'm going to do it because you, can, you told me I couldn't, right? Like, as soon as you make a rule about something, that's immediately what I want to do. Is anybody with me? Like, that's the way it goes. If somebody says I'm not capable or I'm not able, I'm like, I will prove you wrong here and now. And it happens all of the time in, in all areas of life. You know, if you can't go somewhere, all of a sudden, all you want to know is, what, what, what's over there? Why, why can't I go over there? What, what's in there? Or, or if, it, if it's somewhere you're not supposed to be, or it's something that's no longer legal, or, or if there's like a, a shortage of, of some sort of food for a while, and you're like, all I can think about is that food. You know, like, like you hadn't thought about it for weeks, but then all of a sudden you found out there's none around, and you're like, I am starving, you know? And, and this, is, this is the way it goes, because no one likes to be told what to do. And especially no one likes to be told they can't do something. So I want you to imagine with me that you came here this morning and you rolled up, some of you rolled up at 10.15, others of you rolled in about three minutes ago, either way, it's fine. Imagine with me that you rolled up to church today and I was standing in front of the door with my arms crossed like this. And you walked up to the door and instead of like expecting me to say good morning, hi, you know, or the greeters to hand you a bulletin, instead we just said, you can't come in here today. And you're like, ha ha, but it's, no, seriously, you're not allowed. And we listed off some reason or something or, or whatever it was, and we told you you can't come. Two things are going to happen, right? Number one is your, your fight is going to kick in from your adrenal glands, and you're going to be mad, and you're going to want to know why it is we're not going to let you in, and you're going to want to you know, overcome that and, and come in anyway and prove us wrong. But more likely, because of, of where we live and who we are, more likely you're going to get back in the car and either go home or say, I go to this church now, right? Because they're like... Last time I counted, I think, 11 billion churches within 15 miles of here. You know, there's plenty of other options. If I tell you no or somebody tells you no, you just go somewhere else. But imagine with me, right, like that if that happens, but if that happens and there's no other options, 
Imagine with me that there is only one church in town, and imagine with me that, just, just bear with me here, imagine with me that you think the only way to make God happy is for you to show up at church. And someone's standing at the door saying, you, get out of here. You can't come in. This is, this is not going to be good, Right? I mean, things are, are different for us, and we have a different understanding about how all of this works, but, but put, put yourself in this place with me. Now, put yourself even more in this place with me that once a year, you and your family make a special trip that might take dozens, if not hundreds of miles by foot, that might take every spare penny your family has, that might mean everything to your family on the calendar, and you take this special trip to go to this one place and you get there after days of walking and hiking, after hours and hours of endless travel, and you get there and there's someone at the door who says, not good enough. This isn't good, is it? But this is what happens about 2,000 years ago was happening on a regular basis when Jesus was walking the, the earth. And it wasn't Jesus that was doing it, it was the religious leaders at the time and some of their cronies who were trying their best to make as many bucks as possible and trying to keep their jobs secure. And so here, here's what would happen. A normal Israelite person who believed in the God that we serve, the normal Israelite person every year around this time would have to be making the journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the meal they called the Passover. And the reason you did that is because every year you would, go to the, you would go to Jerusalem and it's there that you would make a sacrifice in honor of your family. The, the point of the sacrifice was to make you and your family right with God, right? The, the sins and the wrongs that you had committed had to be paid for and the animal, of your, you know, the animal that you brought was the animal that would pay for those sins. And so once a year at Passover, you pack up the whole family and you take this journey of dozens, if not hundreds of miles across all sorts of terrain to get to Jerusalem, to get to the only place you can do this, which is the temple. And it's there in the temple as they're getting ready to walk in that there are some dudes standing at the door who say, you can't come in here. And over and over again, the people keep hearing this message that they aren't good enough for God. Because the way it worked is the temple kind of had four layers to it. The first layer is called the Gentiles' court. And this is where anyone could go at any time. You know, once you got into the Gentiles' court, you kind of felt like you were there, you were in the temple, you were doing what you needed to do. But then inside of that was the Israelite court. And then inside of that was the inner sanctum, and then inside of that is the Holy of Holies, and we'll get to all of that. But, but inside of the Gentiles' court, as soon as you walked in, there were these guys who weren't necessarily blocking your entrance, but they were doing something a little bit different. You see, what they were doing was they were inspecting your sacrifice. And maybe if you had traveled from a long way and your family didn't have a lot of money, you might have brought a, a small dove or you might have brought a small lamb or, or something that your family had that you had raised and you had cared for. And these guys were standing at the door and they'd look at it and they'd say, this isn't good enough. And then what, what happens? Like, right, you made this journey of all of these miles and all of these places and you did everything you could to get here and you get here and all of a sudden these people are telling you, you, you can't be here. So what they would do is they would then try to sell you something else. 
And odds are what they were selling you is the dove they confiscated from the last guy who went in, but they're just trying to make a buck off you. So now you've brought this dove and you've brought everything you have and they're telling you it's not good enough. What you have to do is buy from us. Or in the, in the least case, they're saying you can't buy from us with your money. You have to exchange your money for our money, which is only good here. And it's not worth nearly what you think it is, but we're going to charge you a crazy exchange rate. And this is happening over and over and over again for, for generations in the temple. And these people are taking advantage of the normal Israelite people who aren't the religious elite, who aren't the greatest of the great or the smartest of the smart or the richest of the rich, and they're just doing everything they can, the religious leaders are, to take advantage of these poor, normal people. And so in the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, he comes into Jerusalem and he knows what's happening. And it says here in Matthew chapter 21, that Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he screamed at them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. And I don't want you to let this point get glossed over. I don't want to let it get glossed over because a lot of times in your mind, the Jesus that you're picturing is the, the really clean cut with the nicely trimmed beard Jesus who has the purple beauty pageant sash on him and the white robe, and he's the Jesus who's just walking around like this. But that's not really who Jesus was, right? Jesus spent the first 30 years of his life working in construction in the family business from a rough part of town. So if Jesus comes in angry, some people are going to take notice. Right? Like, he's not some, some little wimpy dude coming in. Like, Jesus is a real guy. He's a real thick, built dude coming in. And when he starts throwing over tables and chasing people out, it's not an accident and it's not a pretty sight. Everybody's taking notice. Everybody's seeing what he's doing. This is not just like a thing that happened. This is a major event that everyone in Jerusalem is paying attention to. Because Jesus was sending a message to all of the religious elite. And the religious elite in the time of Jesus, in the time of the scriptures, they, they had made their living telling everyone they weren't good enough. They had made a career out of building fences around fences, around rules, around laws, to keep anybody else from having any kind of access to the God that they were trying to serve. And they had done this their whole lives, but Jesus wasn't coming just for the smartest or the best dressed. He wasn't coming for the wealthiest. He was coming for everyone. And so when he's chasing these guys out of the temple, he's not doing it because he's mad they're making a buck at church. He's chasing them out because they're making all of their money convincing everyone else that they aren't good enough. And he's not going to put up with it. And so he chases them out. And they start running and they tuck tail, you know, and, they, and they, they grab what they can and they get out and everyone sees it. And it, like I said, it gathers a buzz around town like you wouldn't believe. And then what happens? The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. 
So Jesus drives out the religious elite. He drives out the guys who were making everybody feel not good enough. He drives out the guys who thought that they had what it took. He drives out the guys who were making the rules on the rules on the rules. And instead, when, it, when it all, is, all of the dust is settled, who comes to him? Who comes to see Jesus? The blind, the paralyzed, those in pain, the hurting. Because Jesus is making a point here to all of these people in all of this, all in this big moment. And the point that Jesus is making here is that he didn't come for the wealthy. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for everyone. He came to break down the very barriers that the religious leaders kept building. And he came to break down all of those rules and all of the fences and all of the walls that they kept building in in, in an attempt to keep everyone out because he came to remove all of that. Jesus came for everyone. And it's a point that he makes very clear from the outset. Three years before this day, Jesus has set out to start his ministry, and he picks out his 12 apostles or disciples, and you've heard of them. But these guys aren't just a group of special people. It's a group of a couple fishermen, guys who aren't too rich, aren't really that poor. They're not too smart, but they're not dumb. They're just normal working class guys. And he picks some fishermen, and then he picks a zealot, and a zealot is, is, a, is a key character in, the, in this time because zealots so hate Rome for the sake of Israel that they will do anything they can to incite riots and over, try to overturn the government. In fact, zealots were most famous for sneaking through a crowd of people and getting right next to a Roman soldier. And out of their sock or out of their sandal, they would pull a small blade and they'd stick it in the side of the Roman soldier, stabbing the man and then run away and yell, for Jerusalem, in order just to get a panic built. And so the zealots hated Rome, and they were kind of the outcasts of society. They were pretty extreme for most people. But Jesus picked one of them to be one of his first followers. But at the same time, Jesus also picked a guy named Levi. And if the zealot was over here on the extreme scale, the tax collector Levi is over here because Levi not only loves Rome, he sold out his family and his friends to go to work for Rome to make money for them as a tax collector. And in the midst of of the fishermen, of the tax collectors, of the zealot, in the midst of this, there's some normal guys who are just living the normal life. And the reason Jesus is doing all of this is to convey the message over and over again that I am here for the normal person, that Jesus is here for everyone. That after thousands of years of religious leaders muddying the waters, after thousands of years of them clouding the lines, Jesus makes it clear that I'm here to remove the barriers and make this about everybody. What's interesting is 2,000 years later, the religious leaders still do a pretty good job of muddying the waters. And still do a pretty good job of making it difficult for people to follow Jesus. But what's really interesting is just a few weeks removed from all of this, the first leaders of this Christian movement 
do a pretty good job themselves of muddying the waters. After Jesus goes to the cross and he rises from the dead, he spends 40 days on earth and he empowers Peter and a few other guys to be the leaders of this movement of Jesus people that's about to take off. And so after Jesus ascends back into heaven, thousands and thousands of people come in droves to be a follower of Jesus. But they quickly realize they have some issues. One of the first issues they have is that a lot of the people who came to follow Jesus first are Jewish by birth. In, this, in that day and age, if you were Jewish by birth, one of the first things that happened if you were a male after you were born is that you were circumcised. And so in order to be a Jew, the official signal of your Jewishness is that you were a circumcised male. So now these guys who have gone through, you know, the life as a Jew become Christians, but then at the same time, there's another group of people, the non-Jewish people called Gentiles, and the Gentiles are becoming Christians too, but the Jewish people are mad because the Gentiles aren't fully Jew too. And so the Jewish people start demanding that in order to become a Christian, you must first become a Jew, and in order to become a Jew, you have to be circumcised. And as you would imagine, that doesn't go over too well with a lot of adults in the room, right? Like, no one's a fan of this situation. And so there's this big dispute that erupts because the Jewish people think in order to follow Jesus, first you have to be a Jew, but the Gentiles are the ones who are saying, no, the whole point of Jesus was to break down the barriers to get rid of the old ways and make it easy for people to follow him. And so the Jewish leaders and the Gentile leaders and the leaders of the Christian movement get together and they come to this decision in Acts chapter 15. And, it, and it's a perfect illustration, I think, of the job of the church even 2,000 years later. And they speak from, the, from this leadership council and this is what they say. They say, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And the decision of these early religious leaders in the Christian movement is that we don't need to make it difficult on anyone to turn to God. Is that we need to add no barriers, we need to add no once used, we need to add no extremes, we need to build no fences, add no more rules, that all we need to do is make it as simple as possible to allow people to turn to And so now, 2,000 years later, the barriers come up, and the traditions and the rules and the fences and the, and the way things always go happens, and there are barriers, but occasionally, at times when churches get it right, they stop, they stop putting up the barriers and stop making it difficult for people to turn to God. But it happens. It's happened here, it's happened amongst us, it's happened in this country, in this world, and I was thinking about it. I was thinking about some of the barriers in the last couple of decades. And I was thinking about how 50 years ago or so, if you, if you had been divorced for any reason, that there are churches who really wouldn't, would rather you didn't come. Because in their eyes, divorce was the unforgivable sin and the unpardonable sin. And if you had done that, you, you really aren't good enough for God anymore. And that kind of changed as the landscape faded and, and things got different. And I started thinking about, you know, like 35, 30, 25 years ago, there's this debate about if you're not wearing a suit to church, then you're probably not good enough for God. 
And there's this whole group of people, and they still exist. And sometimes they let me know they don't like my khaki pants that have $3 in them, and that's fine too. But there's this whole group of people who say, if you're not dressed right for church, you're probably not good enough for God. And whatever the generation, whatever the decade, whatever the timeline, whatever the culture, there are always people who want to add rules and regulations and fences and walls to what it takes for you to be a follower of Jesus. But I'm here to tell you today that the whole purpose of Jesus coming was because religion says you aren't good enough for God. But Jesus said, come to me and I will give you the whole time, the whole purpose of religion and of those religious leaders and elites is to make your life miserable and to make it difficult and to add rules on rules on rules for you to follow. But what does Jesus say? I will give you rest. Rest from the, the, the rat race of trying to build up into the religious elite that you think you need to be. Rest from the rules and the regulations and the legalists and, the, and all of the attitudes. Rest from the feeling of not being good enough. Because here's the bottom line. Like if we're being honest, not a single one of us is good enough. Not a single one of us can make a claim on even the day when we were good enough just that day. But Jesus came for all of us, for everyone. You see, for several thousand years, <clears throat> there was a barrier between the people and God. And that barrier was caused in the Garden of Eden the day Adam and Eve ate from the apple and God had to be apart from them because he couldn't be on evil. And it, it's a very long and elaborate story that takes the entire Old Testament to tell. But basically, God condenses his existence amongst the people into this room in that very temple that the, the Jesus drove the money changers out of, into that room, into this room called the Holy of Holies. And it's there in the Holy of Holies, that God spent the most of his time in this period of the scripture. And the Holy of Holies was divided by a curtain that was roughly 50 feet high. And once a year, right about the time of Passover, after family after family had journeyed the miles to bring small animals to sacrifice in a different place, one priest, as a symbolic gesture for the entire Israelite community, would tie a rope around his waist and tie bells around his ankles, and he would take the perfect lamb, and he would begin the process of entering the Holy of Holies to make the sacrifice. The reason that he tied the rope around his waist and the bells around his ankles was because the Holy of Holies was so perfect that if he made one mistake, he was struck dead. And so they'd have to pull him out and start the whole process over. But God didn't want this divide to exist anymore. He didn't want this barrier to exist between he and his people. So he sent his son, Jesus, to break down the barrier. So Friday comes and Jesus goes to the cross. And it's there while he's on the cross that Jesus cries out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. 
And at the moment Jesus breathes his last breath, the 50-foot-high curtain in the temple in the Holy of Holies is ripped from the top to the bottom. And it signifies in that moment that God no longer lives behind a barrier because Jesus came to break down every single barrier. And this is the story that he tells. It's the story of the barriers being broken and how it is easy for anyone to come to God and say, who I was is no longer who I am, to bury their old self in the waters of baptism and to come up and say, God has saved my life. All the barriers are removed. And it all started because he went to the cross. Here in just a moment, the men are going to pass the bread and they're going to pass the cup. And as we build up towards Easter, the anticipation grows more and more of what that moment truly looked like, of what that moment truly must have felt like, that moment when he passed the bread around to his followers and he passed the cup and he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for you to remove the barriers from you and me. So I, I challenge, I encourage you in this moments to take, take just a second to reflect on what those have truly meant, on what it really means that God has broken down the barriers to keep us from him.